Welcome to the First Baptist Church Keller Sermon Podcast. Each week we make available sermons from Pastor Keith and our staff on our website, fbckeller.org. And on iTunes, search for First Baptist Church Keller TX in the iTunes Store or in the podcast app on your mobile device. And now here's our pastor, Keith Sanders. Well, good morning to all of you. Let's take our Bibles now in hand and turn again to Luke's Gospel. We're in Luke chapter 14. We come today to verse 25. The title of the message is The Other Side of the Pendulum. As we come to Luke chapter 14, you remember that uh, the setting of this chapter so far has been in the home of an unnamed man who was a Pharisee. The Pharisees were uh, religious leaders. Uh, Jesus was an invited guest to his house, and it was the Sabbath day, we're told by Luke. And uh, this occasion was used by the Lord Jesus to teach the Pharisees and all who were present and, and those of us today a number of lessons. The first lesson that we saw is that it's never the wrong time to do the right thing. Remember, Jesus asked the rhetorical question of the Pharisees when he saw this man who had a disease called the dropsy. He says, is it lawful? to heal on the Sabbath. Of course, they were unwilling to answer, but Jesus indeed healed that man, saying that yes, it's always the right time to do the right thing. Second lesson we saw is if one desires exaltation in the life to come, if you want to be exalted in heaven, you have to have humility in the here and now. The Pharisees had missed that point totally. They wanted to be exalted now and in the future. And the third lesson is the invitation to God's heavenly banquet is extended to all people. We saw this last week. Jesus told the parable of the master who sent his servants into the highways and the hedges, to the hinder regions, to invite all who would come to fill his house and his banquet table. But the real point that Jesus was making to these Pharisees was that their fundamental problem was that they would not be at that heavenly banquet because they had turned down God's invitation. That is the means to get there. Of course, we know that the only way to heaven is by and through Christ. And these Pharisees rejected Jesus. Therefore, they rejected God's invitation. And I said when we began this chapter that the Pharisees are easy targets for our criticism. They are arrogant, they're ambitious, they're hypocritical legalists, and they're bullies. And so when Jesus lets the Pharisees have it, those that they had been bullying, the common people, loved Jesus for it. Now, Jesus was already a popular figure before, but, but now, after he's let the Pharisees have it again, throngs of people were hanging on Jesus everywhere. They were following him, literally, wherever he went. And knowing every man's heart, Jesus decided to warn the masses of people that were following him about the high cost of discipleship. And I'm calling that the other side of the pendulum, because the pendulum always swings to extremes, doesn't it? That's about as obvious a statement as that uh, air is good and water is wet. But, but pendulums swing to extremes. And on one extreme you have the Pharisees who had refused to accept the invitation to the banquet. They had refused to follow Jesus. And on the other extreme you have the masses of people who quickly say, yes, I want to be your disciple, Jesus. But they had failed to count the cost. And so let's read our text Jesus has exited, apparently, the Pharisees' home, and he's back among the common people, Luke 14, 25. Now, large crowds were going along with him, and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me 
and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life. He cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which one of you, when he wants to build a tower, does not first sit down and calculate the cost to see if he has enough to complete it. Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who observe it began to ridicule him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, when he sets out to meet another king in battle, will not first sit down and consider whether he is strong enough when 10,000 men to encounter the one coming against him with 20,000? Or else, while the other is still far away, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So then, none of you can be my disciple who does not give up all of his possessions. Therefore salt is good, but even salt has become tasteless. With what will it be seasoned? It is useless either for the soil or for the manure pile. It is thrown out. He who has ears, let him hear. And may the Lord add his blessing to the reading and hearing of his word. Now the first thing we see right away is that there were large crowds, Luke says, who were following Jesus. Now we had a little bit of fun last week, didn't we, with the Greek text. Remember that the the Greek text says that Jesus told the parable of a man who gave a mega, that's the Greek phrase, a mega meal. And we called that message a supersized supper. And we use the Greek phrase mega all the time in the English language, especially in our culture. And it's always used to signify something that is outrageously large or extravagant. Well, God the Father is preparing an outrageous and a large feast for us, isn't he, in heaven. Well, in verse 25, we have another Greek phrase that will be familiar to many of you because it has been co-opted into our English vernacular as well. And the phrase is hoi polloi. It simply means the masses, the multitudes were following Jesus. It has over time in our culture become a pejorative word for the common class. And the other side of the pendulum from hoi polloi is hoity-toity. That's the up and in, and that's what the Pharisees viewed themselves to be. And so here you have in juxtaposition these two groups of people that Jesus has just left the home of a hoity-toity person, and he's gone right back into the masses, the hoi polloi. Now, in fact, the Scriptures seem to indicate that heaven will be populated primarily of common people. I take that from 1 Corinthians chapter 1. If you want to turn there, let's turn there quickly. Paul wrote, of course, to the church at Corinth, and they had all sorts of problems there, doctrinal problems, moral problems. Uh, there were factions breaking up in the church. But in 1 Corinthians 1, 26, he wants to remind them all that they were saved by grace, that they weren't saved because God chose an all-star team. So 1 Corinthians 1, 26 says, speaking to the church at Corinth, for you see your calling, brothers, that not many wise men after the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called, but God hath chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things which are mighty, and base things of the world, and things which are despised hath God chosen, yea, and things which are not, to bring to naught things that are, that no flesh should glory in His presence. That is, there's no one going to get to heaven because God was impressed with their credentials or their resume. In fact, God has purposely chosen primarily from the common people so that He would get the glory and not man. But here's the danger, a danger that Jesus anticipates and He addresses here in verse 25. 
Because no one ever went to heaven for being common or poor. We don't teach salvation by poverty, do we? We teach salvation by grace. And so here again are the two extremes that Jesus warns about. The, the two extremes of the pendulum that I'm speaking about this heavenly invitation this morning. On one side, many of the Pharisees said no to the invitation without understanding the consequences. Verse 24 tells us the consequences that none of those who were invited and said no will taste of my supper. The consequences for rejecting Jesus as God's means of salvation is eternal damnation and separation from God. They didn't understand that. On the other hand, many of the common people that Jesus dealt with day to day were quick to say yes to the invitation. We want to follow you, Jesus, without counting the cost. And so this is the other side of the pendulum, the high cost of discipleship. Let's look at that beginning in verse 26. If anyone, Jesus says, comes to me, and I take that, comes to me for salvation as a disciple, and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. And so the first cost of following Jesus is that you have to put Christ first. This word disciple means follower or learner. Literally, traveling teachers called rabbis would roam the countryside in the city streets and they would have followers who would go with them. And Jesus was no exception. In fact, they called him Rabboni, Rabbi, teacher. And he had his disciples. But by this point in his ministry, there were literally thousands of people who were literally following Jesus everywhere he went. And so Jesus sort of stops and he looks around at these masses and says, if you don't hate your father, mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters and your own life, you cannot follow me. And that's a harsh phrase, isn't it? Hard for us to listen to. Now, we know certainly that Jesus doesn't mean we are to despise those closest to us. We know the Bible commands honor and obedience to parents and care for children. What Jesus is simply saying is that if you're going to follow him, you must be willing to give up those relationships if necessary. Now, most of us find that very difficult to relate to because we have grown up in this culture, this Bible Belt American culture, where no one cares if you join a church or get baptized. In fact, it is somewhat expected. But for Jewish people of the ancient world who were coming uh, to faith in Christ at that time, to identify with Christ almost always meant losing these family members, their father, brother, sister, and even children. And I have known people, and likely you have too, from other cultures that this has been their experience. When they left Islam, for example, or they left Hinduism or Buddhism, their families ostracized them. They were set aside. I know one lady whose family literally had a funeral for her after she was baptized, even though she was very much alive. Now, it might seem harsh to you that Jesus would demand that sort of undivided loyalty. It should not. Remember that Jesus is God in the flesh, isn't he? And God has always demanded that type of commitment to him. Uh, for example, Exodus chapter 20. You, you will likely recognize Exodus chapter 20 as the Decalogue, where we find the Ten Commandments. Now, look at the very first commandment. Exodus chapter 20, verse 2 
God gives this to Moses and through Moses to his chosen people, Israel. He says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or the earth beneath or the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children, the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. Very first thing God wants His chosen people to know about Himself is He will not tolerate half-hearted allegiance. He is a jealous God. He has betrothed Himself to Israel and He says, I'm going to be faithful to you and I expect you to be faithful to me. And that has always been true and will evermore be true that to follow Jesus Christ means total and undivided allegiance. That is putting Christ in His prerogatives first. But it's not only that we must put Christ in His prerogatives first. Verse 27 indicates that we must put ourselves last. Look at it. He says, whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which one of you, when he wants to build a tower, does not first sit down and calculate the cost to see if he has enough to complete it. Jesus says you have to be willing to bear or to carry your cross. Now, now what does that mean? We hear that phrase a lot. We hear people say, well, this is my cross to bear. Well, here's what it does not mean. Your cross to bear as a Christian does not mean any and all of the hardships of life that are common to everyone. Your real estate taxes are not your cross to bear, okay? Uh, your getting allergies living here among the cedars is not your cross to bear. And I'm not making light of those things, but your ornery neighbor or your arth arthritic knee are not your cross to bear. The cross was an executioner's device. It is a reminder from Jesus when he says you must carry your cross that following Jesus is costly. And unless you're willing to give up your own life literally and control of your life philosophically, you cannot be his disciple. And remember who he's talking to. He, he's talking to people that are enthusiastic, they're excited, they're just about to trip him up, they're right on his heels, and he turns around and say, you haven't counted the cost. You gotta hate your family. If it's called upon, you have to prefer me over them. You, you have to be willing to give up control of your own life and even love me unto death. In essence, to be a disciple of Jesus means humbling oneself totally and completely under his authority, knowing that he is a good and kind and trustworthy master. But that good and kind and trustworthy master may very well call upon us to suffer greatly for his sake and for his name. We know that because Jesus was speaking to his inner circle, the 12 disciples we call them. He said to them that a servant is not better than his master. Now for three and a half years they had followed Jesus wherever he went. They had observed how the Pharisees had called him a lunatic at times, said he had a demon at other times, had his own family many times rejected him. 
they eventually saw Jesus stripped naked and whipped, crown of thorns put on his head and placed upon a cross. And he's saying, look, if that happened to me, it can happen to you. A servant's not better than his master. Jesus is the master. We are a servant. And here's what we must continually say to one another, we disciples of Christ, that there is a heaven ahead. We ought to talk and preach and sing about heaven. There is a heaven ahead. There will be a heavenly feast, but it's not yet. In the here and now, there likely and may very well be suffering and even persecution. Scripture says all those who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus can expect persecution. So Jesus is saying to the masses, these would-be followers of him, you must count the cost before following me. And then he illustrates the high cost of discipleship beginning in verse 28. Look at it. He says, for which one of you, when he wants to build a tower, does not first sit down and calculate the cost to see if he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he's laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who observe it begin to ridicule him, saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, when he sets out to meet another king in battle, will not first sit down and consider whether he's strong enough with 10,000 men to encounter the one coming against him with 20,000? Or else, while the other is still far away, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. And so he uses these two metaphors. One is a metaphor about building an edifice, and the other is about a king who is planning a battle. Jesus understands something about the human experience, and that is we all deal with limited resources, don't we? We all have to make and live within budgets. We have been doing some upgrades here, the facilities you've probably noticed here in the last few months. And before we start any project here, one of the things that our bylaws require us to do is to, to get multiple bids to get the best possible price. And once those uh, bids are made and the contracts are let out, then we have a budget that we must stay within. We want to make sure, though, before we turn a shovel of dirt, that we truly appreciate the cost of completing the task, because it would be very embarrassing to begin a building that we were unable to complete. It would remind us every time we saw it of our failure, wouldn't it? And then he gives another metaphor of a king who was about to, to go to battle, and he certainly would, would not fail to get with his advisors and his generals, and they would take all of the intelligence that they had accrued, and they would see, are we able to win this battle? And if it was going to be absolutely impossible, they would do the only thing they could do, which is to sue for peace, to get the best terms possible. And friends, that's what it's like to come to Jesus for salvation. When you know you can't win, you come to him on his terms, don't you? And you say, Lord, have mercy upon me, a sinner. And do you know what Jesus' terms are for forgiving your sins? Nothing more or less than absolute surrender. And that's why he says, so then none of you can be my disciple who has not given up all of his possessions. 
Now, he's not calling every person to a vow of poverty, but he's saying if there's anything in your life that vies for the affection that is owed only to Jesus, you have to be willing to part with it. That's why Jesus said to the rich young ruler, you've said wisely, now go and sell all you have and give it to the poor. And the scripture says he went away sad because he had much. Jesus gets right to the heart of people and he says, you have to unconditionally surrender to me to be my disciple. This was Jesus' concern, wasn't it? with these throngs of people who were following him from place to place. These are people who had witnessed his miracles, apparently. They had heard his wise word. They had seen him stand up to the Pharisees. So they were fired up. They were enthusiastic. They were ready to run through a wall, they thought, for Jesus. But even though they were enthusiastic, they were not always thoughtful. They had responded quickly and enthusiastically, but they had not apparently stopped to think about the cost of discipleship. And here's how we know that. We know, based on the four Gospels, that eventually, soon after this, most of these people who were following Jesus and saying, we want to be your disciples, went back to their lives and they forgot all about Jesus. In fact, it's likely that some of these very people that says we'll give our lives for you were among those who just a few weeks later were chanting crucify him. And friends, I, I fear this is still a problem in our day. It is not extremely difficult to get people, even in our modern world, to make a decision for Christ to, to raise a hand in a room full of people or, or even say a prayer after someone else. This warning from Jesus must inform us how we do things here at First Baptist Keller as it relates to evangelism. So, so I want to tell you this morning what we aim at when it comes to evangelism here at this church and what we aim not to do. The first thing here is what we aim to do. We aim to present the facts of the gospel clearly and boldly. And here are the facts of the gospel, that man is a sinner by nature and by choice, and that every person is separated from a holy God because of their sinfulness. Another fact of the gospel is that God is holy. He is a righteous judge that must, must punish sin, and that one day every person will die and has an appointment before their creator, given account of their life. But here's the glorious good news that we must also say is that Jesus died for sinners. That whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. We, we present the facts of the gospel and then we call people to faith and repentance. Leaving that work up to the Holy Spirit. And then thirdly, and this is the part that's often left out even in Baptist churches. We have to tell them the high cost of discipleship. To follow Jesus means that you have to prefer Jesus over every other relationship in your life, including your family, including your spouse, including your very own flesh and blood, your children. To follow Jesus must means you must submit control of every aspect of life, including your finances, including your property, including your possessions, 
to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. We have to tell them that to follow Jesus might even cost you your very life. We have to tell them to take up the cross daily and follow him. Now that does not mean that we are to be apathetic about whether or not they're saved. It's not that here's the gospel, take it or leave it. We don't care one way or the other. That's not the case. In fact, what does it say back in Luke chapter 15? The master said, go at once into the streets and compel them to come in. We're not apathetic about whether or not they're saved. We are prayerful that they would be saved. We plead with them as Paul did. We shed tears over them that they would repent and believe. But we tell them the high cost. Here's, here's what we aim not to do when it comes to evangelism in this church. We aim not to manipulate people's emotions. We aim not to whip up some kind of false enthusiasm and, and then at the right moment get them to say a prayer or raise a hand or stand in a circle. But, but above all of that, here's what we must never do in the name of evangelism. We must never water down the message in order to make it palatable to the culture. And here's the real danger of what's going on in the world today. We are presenting a cotton candy gospel telling people come to Jesus and he's going to make your life easier and more comfortable and more enjoyable and people are flocking to it. And when the hard times of life come, they fall away like leaves on the tree and we don't know why. Here's why. Because like those masses of humanity that were following Jesus, who were so impressed with his words and his bravery and his posture and how he carried himself, they said, I want to be like that guy. Jesus says, first of all, count the cost. Are you willing to leave everything for my name's sake? We have a situation now in our own denomination that concerns me greatly. Every meeting I go to, our leaders are wringing their hands and saying, baptisms are down. What are we going to do? And, and believe me, I, I rejoice every time a soul is baptized in our church. We're going to have one in the next service. I rejoice with that. But, but if our main concern is getting the baptisms up, before long the tail's going to start wagging the dog. And this has already happened in some cases. We've changed the meaning of baptism. We've disassociated it from church membership and We've disassociated with any sort of meaningful commitment and we say come get baptized so that we can say the baptisms are up. Be careful because baptism never saved anyone. The evidence of salvation is not that you prayed a prayer or got wet even. It is the spiritual fruit that accompanies true conversion. And ultimately, hear me, the real evidence of salvation is perseverance. That's what Jesus was saying. It's, it's fine and dandy to say I'm going to start following you, Jesus. But Jesus says, the one who endures to the end, he shall be saved. And that's when he comes to verse 34. Therefore, now this verse seems disconnected to the rest of the chapter, but it's not. We know because Luke purposely connects it with the rest of the chapter with this transitional word, therefore. Because of what I've said up until this point, salt is good, 
But if even salt has become tasteless, with what will it be seasoned? It is useless either for the soil or for the manure pyre. It is thrown out. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Be assured here, Jesus is not talking about losing your salvation. He is talking about proving that your faith never was real because it didn't last. Hear this, a true disciple is useful for the Lord in this life. That's what it means to be salty. Jesus said to his disciples, you will be two things, salt and light. Light exposes sin and salt preserves against decay. And our primary task as Christians is to turn on the light of the gospel so that the Holy Spirit can convict people's heart that they would be arrested and stopped in their sin. They would turn to Jesus and their decay, their sinfulness would be forgiven. And our task is to do the same thing that Jesus did. Jesus was salty, wasn't he? He was an influence in his culture. He was preserving it wherever he went. And he says, that's what you're supposed to be. A true disciple doesn't just say, I have a confession, this ticket to heaven that I'm going to hold on to and go on with my life. He is impacting the culture all around him. And so let's get very specific. What about you, dear friend? Are you salty? Do you carry with you the aroma of Christ wherever you do? When people come in contact with you, do they recognize a difference? Or are you just like everyone else? He says, if you're just like everyone else, you're useless either for the soil or for the manure pile. You just have to be thrown out. He's saying you're not really my disciple. Now, now hear me. He's not talking about sinless perfection. There's not a person saved that is sinlessly perfect. But he's talking about is humble submission. Is the trajectory of your life towards holiness? Is the aim and ambition of your heart to glorify Christ? Is your life discernibly different from a lost and dying world? Or are you guilty? as so many in Jesus' day were, of living your life on either side of the pendulum's extremes. Maybe you're the hoity-toity crowd, like the Pharisees. Like, I grew up in a church all my life. I, I've memorized 200 verses. I've been coming to church three times a week for 60 years. I'm ordained. I've got it all together. Jesus says that's all well and good, but the only way to Jesus is through the way of humility, by salvation, through grace alone, in Christ alone. Maybe you're on the other end of the extreme, the pendulum. You heard a message about Jesus sometime in your past. Maybe it was a charismatic preacher, maybe at a youth camp or revival meeting somewhere. Someone you heard on the radio and, and, and you were enthusiastic about what you heard and you said a prayer after somebody and maybe even wrote your name down in the front of the Bible. But there has been absolutely no evidence in your life since then of any sort of spiritual fruit. You talk just like you did before. You order your life just like your lost neighbors. You're not hungry for the word and you don't desire fellowship 
with, with other Christians because perhaps you didn't count the cost of discipleship. Jesus said, if you're going to follow me, it has to be unconditional surrender. Giving up every area of your life. Be willing to part with anyone and anything that potentially could be more important to you than your relationship with Jesus. What about you, dear friend? Are you born again? Are you on that path of discipleship? Are you confident that you have the faith that will persevere until the end? Well, the Lord will give you that confidence as you make progress in sanctification. As you grow in grace through Bible study and prayer and the disciplines of the Word. But that is also a work of the Spirit. It's not what you can do. It's what Christ has done working in your life through the power of His indwelling Spirit. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. It's a difficult word today because it's uh, very easy for most of us to delight in the failures of the Pharisees. But the truth is most of us are not in that up and in group. Most of us are the hoi polloi. We're the the common class of people. Sometimes we misinterpret uh, the story of the gospel to believe that just because we're, we're not a Pharisee that we're right with Jesus. And Lord, we've seen today that Jesus turned around and he stopped those who were so enthusiastic and said, you haven't counted the cost. Here's what it means to follow me. It's not easy. Your life's not gonna be comfortable. In fact, you have to be willing to part with everything to be my disciple. Lord, I pray if there's someone here today that you've convicted through your word, by your spirit, of personal sin and guilt before you, that they would be granted faith and repentance. But Father, I pray they also would be thoughtful, that they would count the cost before following you. Father, we've seen so many, even recently, who said an enthusiastic yes, who have fallen away. It's not because they lost their salvation, it's because they never counted the cost. Father, may that never be true here. May we always speak the truth in love and call people to the same kind of commitment that Jesus did. And we pray these things in in his name and for his sake. Amen. Thank you again for listening to our broadcast. To learn more about First Baptist Church in Keller, Texas, or to hear more sermons by Pastor Keith and our staff, visit us online at fbckeller.org.